0: Hey, Taiki, I'm so glad you're joining me for this important episode. We're talking about stroke. Stroke is the number four cause of death in women and kills more women than men. The lifetime risk of stroke for women between the ages of 55 and 75 in the U.S. is 1 in 5. And stroke is the third leading cause of death for women. Now, you may be somebody who's had a stroke or you know of somebody's had a stroke or you're a person who might become or is already a caregiver of somebody that has had a stroke or is at risk for stroke. You have to listen to today's expert interview. We're not only talking about who is at risk for stroke, what the signs are how to deal with the different impacts of having had a stroke. But also, we're talking about you as the caregiver, how you need to take care of yourself and your health while caring for somebody else. And before we dive into today's episode, we're only a few weeks away from the start of the four-week lean-out program. I only offer this program three times a year, and don't miss out on joining us. On intermittent fasting Pilates and strength exercises for women over 50 to boost your metabolism lean out and gain more energy I will put a link in the show notes for you but now it's time to talk about stroke and how you can have hope after stroke I'm Heike Yates a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience I empower women over 50 to take back their health and strength to lead a vibrant life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of women over 50 around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition and mindset strategies and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and sustainable so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring women who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best life so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Our guest today is Sigoyna Tansman, and she is a holistic speech language pathologist, life coach, author, and speaker who's helped thousands of stroke survivors and their caregivers recover meaningful lives after stroke and brain injury. Welcome to the show. It's going on. Hi, I'm so excited to be here this morning with you. So tell me,
1: what are you most passionate about? I'm most passionate about people loving their bodies, understanding how their bodies work, valuing their health, and taking action to live vital
0: lives. That's really what I'm most passionate about. That's awesome because that's what Pursue Your Spark is all about. And now I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about you, who you are, maybe where you grew up, a little bit about your background, because our topic today has to do with stroke, where you're an expert in the field and how to take care of yourself and also how to take care of the caregiver can take care of themselves, not just of others. But tell tell us, who are you? So I grew up in Miami Beach,
1: but if you looked at my track record, you'd think that I was on the run because I moved an awful lot. And no, I wasn't an army brat, but um, I have lived in the east coast, south coast of Florida. I've lived in New York. I've lived in Washington state. I've lived in California for a long time. And then I Lived in Europe for several years, once in uh, Germany for a year, and then in Italy, teaching aerobics for a year before actually concurrent with being a speech language pathologist. So um, I've, I've traveled around a lot, and I think that's given me fantastic insight to see that really people all throughout the world have the same needs. We all have a need to contribute, to be significant, to grow, and most of all, to be connected to other people. And the work that I got started at as a speech pathologist, like many things, you know, you start on one path and, and that leads you to the next thing. Well, I was in college, didn't really know what my major what was, um, and my grandmother had had a stroke. And my mom brought me to visit her. And I watched this speech language pathologist work with my grandmother who had really had a devastating stroke where she lost a lot of language that she had aphasia. And it was fascinating to watch because I've always been all about communication and connecting with people. And the more classes that I took, the more I found it interesting. And uh, so I pursued that for a long time, but I will tell you, that I also left the field because in my 20s I was working with much old well, what I thought were older people then <laughs> now I wonder you know I was 20 and I thought 50 was probably old um and I thought maybe this isn't for me maybe maybe I need something faster and more dynamic and it was a slow process recovering from language and all the many catastrophic things that happen along with a stroke. And I thought in some ways that people would pat me on the head and say, she's just a nice, friendly visitor, and they didn't really take me seriously. And after all, who was I, this 20-year-old, telling somebody how to live their life that has had a big life? And I just didn't have that same sort of experience. So I left the field for a while and became
0: an aerobics instructor <laughs> and, uh, and went off. I did not know that. I did not know that when we had the previous interview, I'm like, what type of aerobics did you teach?
1: So it was really back in the day when it was hardcore pounding because it was in the seventies. And you know that was when Reeboks first came out with their first shoe. Like there was no shoe, right? That was how it was. It True. was Jane Fonda. It was Jane Fonda to the hilt. Uh, leg warmers, bends, the whole thing. and in fact, um, my dream at the time was to go because I'd been to Italy many times. I loved Italy, I wanted to learn to speak Italian, and I wanted to teach aerobics. Now, I didn't know Italian <laughs> I didn't know how to teach aerobics, uh-huh. and I was living in California. And, um, but I started, you know, like, I love this pursue your spark right behind you. And I, and I did that. So I went, okay, well, I was not working at that moment in time. Cause I had actually, like I said, I left the field of speech pathology. Then I got into, um, kind of a sales position and I was laid off because it was an employment company. It was the first and only time in my life I was laid off. And, um, so I had this time to think, and I thought, what do I really want to do? And I I thought I wanna teach aerobics. I wanna live in Italy. So I started taking this Italian class up in San Francisco. The last night of the class, this guy asked me to dinner with him. And I was like, oh, all right. So he he told me he was leaving the next day to go to Italy because his girlfriend was teaching aerobics in Italy. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, how do I blah, blah, blah? Well, anyway, he said, well, I'm going. I'll let you know how it turns out. Well, a month went by and I was literally down to days of the end of my unemployment. I had to make a decision and I swear, I, this is exactly how it happened. I am, not, I am not making one word of this up. I was lying on my bed and I said, what do I really, really wanna do? And I said, I really, really, really wanna teach aerobics in Italy. The phone rang, it was this guy, he said, I'm back they're hiring people, here's the number to call. Now, this was pre-internet days. So you know how that is. Um, Anyway, long story short, I ended up there.
0: Yes, that's amazing. And uh, you still speak Italian? I
1: still understand a lot. And I still, and I revived it a little bit. So um, I was corresponding with a friend of mine there, and I was writing in Italian, certainly not as good as it was back then, because that was my gosh, that was in the 70s. What are we?
0: (laughs) Just 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So then you taught your aerobics classes, living the life in Italy. How did you come back around to speech pathology and stroke? Exactly.
1: Because that's actually where I am an expert. Um, So I moved to New York because then again, it was like, okay, what terrifies me next? Moving to New York. (laughs) So I did. I moved to New York and Um, I say, when you live from hand to mouth, it pays to be ambidextrous. So I had my leotard on and taught fitness, but I was a licensed speech pathologist. So I started working for visiting nurse service and um, worked in their home care program and, and really saw a lot of stroke patients there. And it was fascinating. I was in every community from the Upper East Side to the most affluent, to the projects in the Bronx, where I walked sometimes alone, where I should have had an escort, um, where I sat on the edges of beds, where cockroaches crawled on my legs while I was treating patients. And again, it gave me this just, everybody's the same. Everybody's the same. We all need to communicate. We all need to love and we all have challenges and we all need to be our best. And so I then continued in the field of speech pathology, but I left New York. Um, I got married, we moved to Florida, and then we moved back to California. So every place at, well, we were also in Seattle, Washington for a while um, I was able to get my license in every place and work as with stroke and traumatic brain injury was my specialty. Mm-hmm.
0: No, so in every state, you have to get a new license for it? Yes, you do. Oh, interesting. Now, when we when we met and talked about our topic for today, we said in our age group, the women around 50s and up and even younger, we're dealing now with our parents or families that might be at risk for stroke or, or have had a stroke. And I thought it was a really good topic to shed more light on as we're not talking that much about what actually happens uh, during a stroke or after especially after a stroke to all involved. So let's start by let's just talk about what the heck is a stroke because sometimes we throw those words around and we assume everybody knows what a stroke is and people are oftentimes confused about what really is a stroke and Are there different types of strokes?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so true. You know, we don't know what that is until it happens to us. And trust me, when you're in the hospital and you're learning about stroke, it is a crash course in medicine. The language, the differences, it is an overwhelming process. So let me simplify it for you, first of all. A stroke is an event that happens in the brain. There are two types of, there are two categories, I should say, of strokes, the block or the bleed. A block is when blood is literally stopped from going to parts of the brain. So that's usually some type of a clot, right? Or a piece of fat from your artery breaks off and blocks your um, artery from having blood flow. So that's called the block. That is the most common type of stroke a blockage type of stroke. Then there's the bleed. You might've heard the word aneurysm. A bleed is when blood uncontrollably permeates the brain. And this is actually a more dangerous type of stroke and one that is more likely to lead to death, not just paralysis or other problems. Now, the problem with bleeds are The people can have aneurysms. They kind of look like little grapes. If you think about a cluster of grapes or a little tiny balloon, and they're a a part that fills up with blood until it gets so big that it bursts. Now, why this is dangerous is that people can have aneurysms and be completely asymptomatic, no symptoms whatsoever, until it bursts they refer to the aneurysms as like the ticking time bombs.
0: Hmm.
1: And it can be a congenital thing, something from birth, um, what's called an an AVM, it's a complicated web of arterial veins that are, are tied up, but we don't know about it until we start to have symptoms. That said, in the two categories of stroke, if you just look at your fingerprints, you will know that every stroke is as individual as your own fingerprint. And that's because your own brain is different. Your education, not formal education, but your ability to learn, your just general intelligence, whether you're more of a visual learner, an auditory learner, a kinesthetic learner, all these components make it different for every stroke. And then you look at, well, where did the stroke occur? Because there's lots of parts of the brain. If a stroke occurs in the side where it affects your motor speech, you might bleh, 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 bleh. you might have dysarthria, or apraxia, where you can't. It's not a muscle issue, but you can't say a word. Like you go to say something, and it comes out instead of saying pencil, it comes out subillabet and. And then, but you say, say pencil and they go Sybilibet, but they later on they'll say pencil. So it becomes um, a motor sequencing problem. Mm -hmm. And then there's memory, cognition, organization, all the executive kinds of functioning that take place in our prefrontal cortex, damage there can affect our behavior, our emotional centers, Our ability to plan, to organize, to recall. Then, if you have damage to another part of the brain that affects the auditory part, you might be able to speak, but there's a type of aphasia called Wernicke's aphasia, which is you make no sense. Like, there's you, you can't understand the language. A stroke can affect reading, writing, speaking listening, literally every, and as well as all your motor aspects. Mm -hmm. So often what we don't know about the brain is that there are two sides to it, (laughs) right? So, and I want to pause here because that's a lot of information to start.
0: Let me me backtrack just a little bit because blood clots seem to be very common. Even in my group of uh, marathon runners, people, you would say they're super fit they suddenly come back and say I have an artery blockage and so they're then doing all kinds of treatments which I don't know about that's why we have you on there uh, to to get rid of that blockage and you would think somebody who's so aerobically fit why do they have a blood clot right And, you know, well, clots can be in different
1: places too, but the ones that we're concerned about for a stroke, of course, are the ones here or Mm -hmm. ones that can travel to the brain and everybody so we have genetics. That's one thing, right? Even, even the best and the healthiest people with the healthiest lifestyles can have genetic components that make them predisposed to that. Mm -hmm. But you bring up a great point because 80% of strokes are preventable. So those people that are leading healthy lifestyles, reducing their inflammation through diet and through management of their blood pressure in particular um, are leading healthier lives. So being aware of what your risks are, managing your risks and taking care of your diet, your sleep, your hydration are all, and certainly stopping things like smoking are the best kinds of things but hey you know you brought up an interesting question you said these women are parents let me tell you though women right now are getting more of the piece of pie than we want for stroke stroke affects more women Mm -hmm. and the age is getting younger and younger where strokes can happen
0: why is that
1: yeah partially that's due to our hormones our use of birth control, those are just the natural precursors to that health. Our pregnancies Mm -hmm. contribute to those kinds of things as well. Our body is required to do more things hormonally. Mm -hmm. We make babies. (laughs) Like
0: how amazing is that? (laughs) <laughs> that is interesting that that, it, that the age is being younger younger for us to become a stroke victim. Yeah. And what is the difference between a heart attack and a stroke? Right. So the heart attack is actually
1: attacking the heart. That's the muscle in your chest that um, beats all the blood throughout your body. So heart attacks can also occur because of blocked arteries, right? The difference is, that the stroke affects the brain. Mm-hmm. So a completely different organ system has very different effects.
0: Yeah, so if you, let's, let's play out the scenario. I'm having a stroke. What are the symptoms from the viewpoint of the person that has the stroke? And that's how, such a great question. And then how does the, and then we t- dive into what the, the other, the outside world sees or how they can help. Right. So very often, and this acronym is such a useful
1: acronym for people to know, it's called FAST. F-A-S like speak and T like time. So the F stands for face. We look at a person's face because we want to look for symmetry or asymmetry. Typically with a stroke, it affects half of the body. It could be either the right side or the left side. So you wanna look, is a mouth drooping? Is an eye drooping, right? Is there like like a weakness, a flaccid look of face, right? So that's face, F. A stands for um, arms. You ask somebody to raise their arms. And typically, again, you're going to see one arm goes up, the other arm is weak. So we're looking for this asymmetry. S stands for speech. Ask somebody to speak. Ask them to say their name, their address. Tell me where you live. Say a sentence. Because you'll often hear either words that start to sound weird or a pronunciation that is slower or difficult in formulating the words um, or that they can't actually name the words. Mm -hmm. Part of aphasia is a loss of language, you start to lose words. And then T stands for time. Time is the most important aspect of stroke. If you can get help, particularly for the blocked type of stroke, and of course you don't know what we, whether you have a block or a bleed, mm-hmm. but we know that getting immediate help is the most important thing. Now for a block stroke, there's a drug that can be administered within the first three hours, but it's a critical window and you lose billions of neurons and synapses if you don't get that stopped. But the drug called TPA can only be administered within that first three hours. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And for a bleed, of course, we wanna prevent death. That's the most important thing. The brain can swell. You might need to have a shunt put in, but you need to get medical treatment to rule out whether or not you're having a stroke.
0: Why do so many people when, I'm just thinking of my CPR and AED courses where they always play out the scenario. So you know when you have to run and you have to get your AED or whatever call for help. Why is it that when you have a stroke, from at least from the scenarios that I'm exposed to or heard about is that people refuse that they have anything wrong with them when it's such obvious signs as you just explained
1: right so there are a lot of reasons first of all people get embarrassed and I always say to them it's better to die of embarrassment than die of a stroke <laughs> right <laughs> right? <laughs> right i say yep yeah. right the other thing is they Know people don't like the idea of going to the hospital. They they recognize that you know it's a rabbit hole that they might not want to go down. Mm -hmm. So they're embarrassed, they're afraid, and they don't quite know what to do. They minimize it. People minimize it all the time. And they think, well, it could be a bad headache, I'll feel better, I ate something. Um, maybe it's nothing, it'll pass. And You know, I always like to tell people too, you know, you can call 911. If they don't transport you, you don't pay, right? But come and get checked out, get your blood pressure checked out. You have to take care of this very quickly because the downside is devastating. You can avoid paralysis. You can avoid long-term disability. Stroke is the leading cause of long-term disability.
0: And that's, that's a serious issue.
1: That is a serious issue. Think about all the single women
0: that are out there. If they are
1: disabled long-term, how do they provide for themselves, their families?
0: Yeah, very true. Very true. So, and from an outsider, when you see somebody having a stroke, now that we know what the signs are and And ladies, so be on the lookout, just check around for you. What do you do from an outside perspective when you think somebody has a stroke, just grab them and say, we're going to the hospital, like it or not?
1: (laughs) Well, you can certainly call 911. That's the first thing you should do because you know who knows how far you are from a hospital, a trained medical professional can come and take the vitals and transport more quickly. Depending on where you are in the country, there's some amazing things that are taking place right now. They're actually called stroke ambulances. They're specially designed. So it's not just about transporting, it's about treating in the vehicle itself. So they are designed, they have telemedicine set up. I live in Los Angeles and there are a few stroke ambulances out there right now. And these are phenomenal. So patient comes in, There's a call. We think there's a stroke. The stroke ambulance goes out. They have telemedicine in there where they are talking to a physician, transmitting all the vital signs, the blood pressure and the various other kinds of statistical data. They're able to get, um, I believe they can get scans in the bus. Wow. And I believe They are, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that they are able to actually treat with this TPA, this drug that is necessary to reverse or halt the the symptoms of an onset of a stroke. Now, sometimes um, that they decide they can't use that medication, but they have to actually do a surgical procedure to remove the clot, but that also needs to be done quickly. So, but as a person observing, you go through that acronym FAST, look at their face, ask them to raise their arms, get them to speak, and then know that, and and note the time because you've got that
0: three hour window. That is a good advice. So guys, listen to this when you listen and perhaps watch the video that we're recording today. You know, this is something that you, it's so simple to remember. But listen to this and maybe write it down so you can remember it better what to do fast when something like this happens because we are in the age group where this can happen at any time. And Skonia wrote a book called Hope After Stroke for Caregivers and Survivors. And we don't want to, only want to talk about the misery that this situation can bring, but we want to bring hope and what to do after a stroke has happened and you can see if you see the video you see that she's holding up her beautiful book and I got a copy of that too thank you very much you're so welcome by the way you know for your
1: listeners I am happy to provide I created a little uh, picture graphic um, that shows the words fast and what to do and I'm happy to offer that to your listeners as a free download and I'll make sure that they get that
0: Perfect. That's
1: probably from your website, right? Um, I actually, yeah, I have it, but I'll, it's on my website. Yes. It's on my website, but I'll also provide you a link for it. Okay.
0: Perfect. So let's talk about the hope. What happens? So you, I had a stroke and how do I feel what's going on with my life? And how do I do, how do I start taking care of me? And then from there we go to, from the outside world, the caregiver. Right.
1: So the, the <laughs> there are kind of three stages to a stroke, right? There's the place when you're at the hospital and you're in the acute setting. And there are many stages for recovery, but that first acute stage lasts about a week. And then you move into what's called the subacute stage. And why that's important is that's the sweet spot of recovery. At the beginning, I'd like to say to people, you know, when you're in the hospital, think of this person who's had a stroke like a newborn. Um, We want to have quiet and peace, as little overstimulation as possible. The person who's had the stroke can be in various stages of awareness, but they've had an accident in their head a terrible accident in their head. And they're very compromised. They're going to be fatigued. Their endurance is going to be very low. They're not going to be able to tolerate a lot of things. They're going to be confused. They're going to be afraid. And quite frankly, the hospital isn't the best place for them to be because think of the noise, think of the overstimulation, think of the interruptions and the interruptions to your sleep. You know, if you There's a, there's a great physician, Bernie Siegel, who works with cancer patients. And he says, if you want a solid hour of sleep, make sure to press the nurse button for the call button for help, (laughs) because that's the only time you'll get sleep. Otherwise there people are in and out of your room. And so it's an overwhelming period of time and yet a necessary period of time, because this is when you get your assessments, they assess you for physical therapy speech therapy, occupational therapy, other types of rehab that you might need, um, social emotional help. And you have this short window in the hospital to see and take part in services. And yet you're not even hundred percent really ready to do that. But the trend in hospitals is to treat and release much earlier. And insurance is a big part of that. So you're typically not in the hospital for more than a week, sometimes between four days to to 11 days, depending on the severity of the stroke. When you go home, while everybody desires to go home, that brings up new challenges because now you are responsible for your medications, for your blood pressure, for organizing all the therapies that may be coming in. It's a lot yeah. and you're doing it with one side of the body, typically. Maybe it's not your dominant side. And so there's there's a lot I go into. We don't have the time to talk about this right now, but this idea of you know, recovering function of your dominant side because frequently the stroke will affect a right side of function, right? Mm-hmm. And so we teach compensatory strategies to use the left hand, But unless we use our brain, we're not going to get that right back.
0: So would it then be good to play crossword puzzles?
1: Well, yeah, that's that's very simplistic, but yeah, I mean, that's down the line. And depending on whether what your mental capacities are, that's one component of it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, For some people, I mean, I worked with a superior court judge who was Stanford educated, routinely spoke in four syllable words as just his like, you know, hanging out language. And when I met him, he could not tell you what this was. He couldn't even point to cup. He couldn't point to spoon. He couldn't say those words. That man, now let's talk about the hope for a second because you can only imagine. How do we think this man could go back to being a superior court judge. How could that even be possible? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And he did. He worked in therapy for two years, really worked hard. He had aneurysms. And when he recovered from the first surgical clipping of the aneurysm, when I was working with him, two months later in the hospital, he had a secondary surgery to prevent another aneurysm. He was paralyzed on one side of his body, had no usable language, um, and then with therapy and time, over two years of rigorous, rigorous training, then he went for into the courtroom to as a listener, as an observer, steadily, little by little, with support from therapists going there. And then when he thought he was ready to go back in some capacity, a limited capacity, underwent such extensive neuropsych testing to prove his competency, He was amazing. And he went back to work and worked on the bench for another 10 years.
0: I believe there is so there is hope. It is not all bad. It is a bad situation, a terrible situation, but it is not the end of your life. No. you're, You're saying with the right help, the right support, the right training that is provided to us, we can move beyond that time and and really create the best what we can out of it and like go ahead yeah said every stroke is different and the severity so when somebody hears that they're like wow that's just like a miracle everybody as as has said earlier it's different so the severity varies from person to person but also the determination of getting better varies don't you think that- is 1000%
1: right on. You are right because it's not always the severity of the stroke that is the predictor of how well they'll do. In fact, one of the things that you said, the determination is part of what I call the secret sauce of recovery. <laughs> and, and, you know, we try to figure out what is the best predictor, the outcome for a person to recover. And, and doctors don't really know. So I say, there's a whole chapter of my book called The Secret Sauce of recovery, which is purely anecdotal, not evidence-based, but I see it time and time and time again. Humor, determination, faith. And it doesn't matter what the faith is in. I've treated people that believe in God, that believe in Allah, that believe in Jesus, that believe in, um, you know, source energy, that believe, that are agnostic or atheists that just believe in their doctors. They need to have a faith bigger than them and this moment. They need to add the word yet. I can't do that yet, Right. This is just a temporary situation. The brain is so brilliantly
0: resilient. It is amazing. It is. And I, yeah, and it's just by thinking in a positive way, I found from in my field to just positive thinking changes everything. It changes from something being, oh, my God, I have to do this again to like, yeah, I'm getting better of doing this for the hundreds time. I'm not perfect but I'm getting better. And you're right, that language is
1: a component of it too. The words that we choose create a reality. You said, I have to do this. And then you said, I'm getting better. Or even I get to do this so that I get better. Yeah. And and that's what happens. The brain, there's something called neuroplasticity, which very simply means do it, do it, do it, do it again, do it again, do it again right? Because we groove the pathways in our brain to build behaviors. And it works for our good, but it can also work for our bad.
0: True. In my world, we call this creating habits. Exactly. (laughs) Good ones and not so good ones. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And your brain will work for you or against you by doing something repetitively. That's all there is. And humor is the other thing. When people can find humor, and believe me, there is plenty of humor to be found. It's dark humor, it's silly humor, but we laugh about it. So, for example, you know, we can take a situation that could be so humiliating and we can find the funny in it. And when we do that, it makes all the difference. Can I give you an example? Give me an example. <laughs> yes, right. So, this is a man that this has happened to me. It's an example in my book. And, um, So, you know, we have motor issues that could be a problem when you've had a stroke, you're paralyzed with one hand. Anyway, he was trying to urinate, he was trying to pee, and he kind of like missed, right? (laughs) And, you know, it was like, oh, well, I mean, we just make it funny. And, and, and and he's, it could be just so humiliating, but it was, I didn't get it there, you know, I got this or whatever, I forget what exactly what he said now. But, but when we when we're willing to just laugh and say, so so what? I'll do it better next time. And um, and one thing that I think that people do, it's, it's one of my tips that I give people. And I think you probably do this too with your people. We have these smartphone technologies. We know that there are certain times a day that we get down. That's why they made a happy hour, right? Everybody is like that. <laughs> stroke or no stroke, happy hour. There's a part of the day where we're, we're not at our, our strongest. And if you use your smartphone to create an alarm, some positive message that says, you're getting better every day. You can do this. Like your sign says, you got this. You got this. I mean, that is your own personal coach. And when you, you connect it to a, a sound, like an alarm that goes off, you're literally Pavlovian training your brain. You hear that sound and you get a hit of, of um, that feel-good hormone. You get a hit of feel-good hormone
0: and you say, yeah, I've got this. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to remember because we oftentimes just try, tend to see what doesn't work well or beat ourselves up that we are not further ahead, that we're not doing better based on some fictional imaginationary story that we tell ourselves.
1: And, and it's not so fictional, of course, because, you know, people do say like, I, I want to be able to talk. I want to be able to go to work. I want to be able to do, I want, everybody says, I just want to get my life back. And I tell people there's no getting it back. There's only going forward. And the forward part can be so brilliant. I've had people tell me that a stroke was an upgrade to their life. Now you say, how did that happen? People that were alcoholic that no longer are burdened by the addiction of alcoholism have improved the quality of their life. That's an interesting thought. I would have not thought that. I never would have thought that either. My patients teach me every day. I had a woman who suffered from paralyzing depression. She had lost an infant child while she was breastfeeding and for 12 years was in this paralyzing depression that she didn't leave her house. She had another child. She homeschooled her children because she couldn't leave her house. She had this massive stroke and she suddenly needed help. She suddenly started to leave and she told me, and I didn't even know this two years later after working with her, she said, this stroke has lifted this depression. I can now, she now, she was paralyzed, she now quilts and, and makes quilts for homeless shelters. She makes crocheted things for um, uh, dialysis patients because she's a dialysis patient. She gives to her community in ways that she couldn't before. And she welcomes that, like that blows my
0: mind. Absolutely, That's, this, this is where the hope comes in that, that there is something else that we can switch to or or it, some habits change that, but as it is so different from ev- for everybody, let's switch over to the caregiver. So you're the person who now takes care of somebody with a stroke. And I know people try to smother you with love and do everything for you and, and treat you like a child, but tell us how you can have hope as a, from the caregiver side and what is one really important thing that you need to remember when you are a caregiver? That is
1: such a great question. I love that question because the tendency for caregiving is to give, give, give. I almost wanna help people change that, that title to care partner. And the reason being is that in over giving, in over serving, we create learned dependence from that person and we don't allow them to grow. And we don't allow them to achieve their highest potential of independence. And further, as a caregiver, we deplete ourselves. The number one problem with caregiving is physical burnout. Caregivers tend to die before
0: the person they're giving care to. Whoa, now that's, that is an eye-opening statement <laughs> right there. Yeah.
1: And it's a devastating, scary thought because caregivers forego their own medical appointments, their own dental appointments. They believe that they have to give, give, give. So, making sure that the first person they give to is themselves is the absolute most important thing. Mm-hmm. You can't give from an empty cup, right? You can't drive a car with an empty gas tank. You will blow your engine up. (laughs) And we don't want that, right? So caregiving is, you know, a challenge. It's a, by, by design or default, and listen, everybody needs to determine whether they are equipped to be a caregiver. And there should not be a judgment about it because it's, It's, we can love our partner, we can support our partner, but we may not be the person that gives them the full care that they need. And quite honestly, you know, caregivers sometimes kind of want to fall into this category of being the therapist too. And if you've ever been taught to drive by your spouse or learn to play golf from your spouse, (laughs) that is a big (laughs) no-no. That usually doesn't work. On a rare occasion, it can work.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But caregivers need to give to themselves first and to find the balance of how to do that, um, to stand back and allow their partner, their loved one, to find their way. Caregivers should be fierce advocates. Mm -hmm. That's a great place where they can be a fierce advocate, especially when they're dealing with insurance, which is a complicated, um, situation that, that taxes a brain that's fully cognizant and, and well, right. I mean, I, I know if I have to talk to an insurance company, I need to plan (laughs) before and after because it's, it's wearing, Mm -hmm. um, So I think that's the care. The most important thing about caregiving is to learn to care for yourself and from the beginning and to ask
0: for help. Yeah. And you're not the only person taking care of the person that had the stroke. And I, I, I've come across situations over the years where the person said, you know, there's nobody else that can help me and nobody else can do it as I do. And he or she is, is only doing things when I am there. And when I'm not there, this person does not do what they're supposed to do. And uh, it's such a codependency then, that like you said earlier, there's the learning, uh, that the, the, the person doesn't learn what they need to learn to function on their own. And the caregiver takes over that, doing everything for them.
1: There's actually a, a term for it. It's called learned
0: helplessness.
1: And it's a real problem for everybody involved. And it's and here's another thing. It's funny because when you hire a caregiver and now you're paying a caregiver, and then you're thinking, well, they should do that. We still have to find the boundaries of what that survivor needs to do
0: to create independence. Mm-hmm. I have a client who is not a stroke survivor, but she is an elderly lady, lady with a ton of health issues. And she recently had been, as we're still in COVID, diagnosed with COVID, has then um, had to spend some time in the hospital because she fell twice, it was a whole big mess. But her children who live further away and can't go into her um, living quarters where she lives now, and they've hired somebody to come in and help so that she had for somebody come at night like there's three or four different people that come at night and then there's day people and when i worked with her yesterday she said i didn't tell my kids yet but i canceled the evening person and i said oh why and she says well i'm i'm fine i've recovered it's been three months i can dress myself i can get in and out of bed i can go to the bathroom and so, it's is funny, because she always tells me things like this before she tells her kids. I think she's testing out my reaction. It's <laughs> and, true. And I'm rooting for her because the kids mean well, but they don't let her go back to it. And she said, you know, I probably need somebody during the day, but not every day, not every night. Um, And so she has decided that she's just going to make her own decision, which I think is great to say, this is how far I've come from where I started, and I want to get better and not get stuck in that loop of being helpless.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in my book, I offer a lot of um, really a, a lengthy checklist to see about leaving somebody alone and what you need to do to be safe and it sounds like she is very cognizant she can be and that's one of the things can this person identify their strengths and weaknesses you know i had a a, we can laugh about it now because nobody was harmed but um i was working with a man who was about 45 years old he had had a devastating stroke that caused blindness too. He already had vision impairment, but he was really blind, terrible judgment, um, very impulsive and originally couldn't speak. Finally got around to being able to speak and his wife said, let me, I'm going to leave him. He's okay on his own. Well, she came back to the house. She couldn't see him in the house. She followed the buzzing sound outside. Where was he? On a ladder with a chainsaw trimming the trees. (laughs) <laughs> so she had to rethink that home alone
0: you know kind of concept so oh my goodness I mean like you said you know it's funny but at the moment she probably was getting a heart attack herself she's like oh my god what is he doing up there
1: yeah exactly and, and judgment can be a component of this so mm-hmm. it's it's tricky to know when but that balance of working with your people and talking is so important.
0: What would be some final words of advice to either the caregiver or the the stroke person themselves uh, that you would give them? So I'm all
1: about prevention, of course. Um, Look at your lifestyle, lower your stress, lower your stress, be mindful, meditate, get some exercise. And even if there is a stroke, maintain those practices those daily rituals of taking a little time for yourself that you set the day straight, that breathing. Breathing, it's the first thing we do when we're born and it's the last thing we do when we die. If we don't pay attention to our breath as a regulator of our nervous system, we, we should, the point being is that we can, we should, and it helps us. And you know, seek resources, um, follow your healthy lifestyle kinds of program and, and learn to look for the one little beautiful thing you could appreciate every day. That's an automatic antidepressant. <laughs> the sky is available, trees are available. All of that is free. Mm-hmm. All of it's free. Your breath is free. Appreciation is free. Drink water, and lead a le- a healthy lifestyle, and find love in
0: your heart. I think these are very good words of advice because, like you said, not everything has to cost something. There's a lot of stuff we can have for free, and we don't appreciate them. But with that said, where can people buy your book and your uh, your list that you mentioned earlier? So
1: great. So I have two books out. One is the Hope After Stroke, you can buy them on Amazon. The other is the Caregiver's 12 Week Journal and Workbook. So that's fantastic. Amazon, wherever books are sold, Barnes and Noble, it's in Kindle version, it's in print, paperback, hardback, and the audiobook, which I narrated myself. And that um, is free with a subscription. If you have an Audible subscription, it's free with that subscription. Um, but they're, you know, all available wherever books are sold.
0: And where can people reach you?
1: So I'm available either by my website, which is hope-stroke.com, hope-stroke.com. My, e- my email is hopeafterstrokenow@gmail.com, And I'd love, I will make sure that you get a link so that our your listeners can download uh, the acronym fast, so that they can learn to what the symptoms are of a stroke and how to respond quickly.
0: Yeah. And also, you will find a list in the show notes, because Tagonia is on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, she's like everywhere, (laughs) where you want to get in touch with her. So I put those links in the show notes, because I have them all copied down for us. So you don't have to repeat them but we'll put those as well in the show notes um so you can grab it listeners right there and then don't have to hunt around or anything so it's gonna thank you so much for being here and sharing and talking about a topic that is not that wildly and talked about
1: well you're very welcome and and thank you for doing what you do for women and and pursuing their sparks because that's what we're all about. We are,
0: we've got so much juice left, right? We are just getting started. We're just getting started. And so for anybody listening to this episode, please reach out to us. And as you find out how you can reach Sagonia on uh, Twitter or all the other social media, but reach out to us and you know you can find me at Heike Yates on Instagram at Heike Yates Pursue Your Spark on Facebook. Tell us how this episode has helped you gave you some spark of an idea of what to do. If you have questions, reach out, talk to us because I have the expert right here. If you watch the video, enjoy it too because you can meet her in person, almost in person and get more advice and ideas and you can always replay it. So with that, thank you so much for being here, Zagonia, And I
1: thank you so much too. I really had a blast. Thank you so much.
0: And we'll see you, everybody, next time on the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Ciao. Ciao.